It's good to be with you this afternoon. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at Zoe. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that. I'm, I'm looking around quickly, though, and I'm not seeing too many people I haven't had a chance to meet. So uh, if you are one of those people, I would love a chance to meet you. If you're wondering what happened to Jesse, um, you can find him later and uh, ask him yourself. Um, but in the meantime, I do feel the need to apologize before I get into the sermon, um, since we are among friends. You know, um, we normally do an Advent series, uh, but the series that I've been doing the past couple of weeks is not super positive, right? It's kind of a downer, um, and um, I don't think it needs to be a downer, but it's not your normal Advent series. And the reason for that is, um, uh, there's a lot of reasons, but the main reason is we wanted to continue through the book of Ecclesiastes. So, you know, I love a good Advent series as much as the next person, but uh, we really do love and, and, and desire to preach through the Bible verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter in the books. And so that's what we're going to continue to do. Next week, we do have a special service for Christmas Eve, which um, we're excited about. But we are still in the book of Ecclesiastes today. So if you could turn your Bibles there, Ecclesiastes 7. Um, we will try to tie all this to Christmas still. Um, but Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29. If you could um, bow your heads with me once you get there, and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We know, Lord, that we are in need of its truth. Lord, that there are many um, other things that that vie for our attention, that, that want to distract us from your word. And yet we know, God, that um, your word is what we live on as your people, Lord, we are not meant to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so even in books of the Bible that are difficult at times and hard, Lord, we know that we can find nourishment and life from you there. And so we pray, Lord, that you would do that in this time. We ask for your grace to be with us, and we pray, Lord, for your spirit to uh, empower us, Lord, to hear and to receive and to apply your word to our lives for our good and ultimately for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In 1953, American author Flannery O'Connor released a short story which would go on to become her most popular, most well-published, most famous story. And it's a story that starts with an unnamed grandmother. She lives with her grown son, Bailey, in Georgia with his wife and their three kids. And the story starts with the family about to take a trip to Florida. Um, but the grandmother, she doesn't want to go, right? She, she wants to go visit eastern Tennessee where she grew up so that she can see some old relatives or acquaintances um, in her old age. And so in order to make her case to Bailey, she brings out an article from a newspaper she's been reading. And in this article, she shows him that there is an escaped convict named the Misfit who has gotten out of prison and he is headed towards Florida as well. And she says she would never be able to answer to her conscience if she were to take her children in the same direction as a criminal on the loose. But Bailey, her son, he's not really hearing it, right? He kind of ignores his mom. They get in the car. They decide to continue to Florida. And so the next morning, as they get into uh, the car, they head off towards the Sunshine State. And about halfway through their trip from Georgia to Florida, they stop at a restaurant. And the restaurant is named The Tower, and there's a guy who owns it. His name is uh, Red Sammy. And Red Sammy and the grandmother, they talk for a bit. They talk briefly about how a couple of men came through the restaurant earlier in the day, or actually a few days ago, and they had taken gas at the pump, but they had driven off without ever paying for the gas. And after a brief conversation about just how bad the world is getting, Red Sammy says these words. He says, a good man 
is hard to find. A good man is hard to find. That's, of course, the name of the story. And even if you haven't read it, you've probably heard that phrase before. A good man is hard to find. Have you ever felt that way before? Can you relate to the sentiment? Or does it seem kind of strange to you? Does it seem like something that you would absolutely amen? Or does it seem like something you question? I think if we're honest, the truth is that in our day and age, this sentiment, this feeling that the world is getting worse all the time is super common. Right? I've heard it. I've felt it. I've seen people say it. That despite wanting to be positive, you can't help but say things are getting pretty bad. According to one study I read uh, in this day and age, 2023 actually, 23% of Americans and 40% of those under the age of 25 battle feelings of depression and hopelessness about the future of the world. That's an incredible stat. It's sad. The world is bad, right? You feel the world is getting worse. People suck. There's nothing you can do to change it. And so if you've ever felt that way before, that's what we're going to be talking about on this week before Christmas. We're going to talk about this feeling. And even if you haven't felt this way before, I think that what Solomon has to say in the book of Ecclesiastes will not be easy, but it might be exactly what we need. So we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We are in chapter 7 of the book. And what we're seeing is that Solomon is going more in depth into the problems that he has already uncovered and examined earlier in this book so far. Verses 1 through 14, which we covered last week, had to do with the problem of death, the existential crisis that it produces in us when we attempt and we fail to create our own meaning. And then this week in verses 15 to 29, Solomon turns his attention to the other great limitation, he turns his attention to evil in this world. And he forces us to look there with him if we're brave enough to do it. So let's look at the text together. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 to 29. Solomon starts, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing." Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. Now, uh, this is a hard passage. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Um, You know, I, I thought to myself, if I were to meet or if you were to meet uh, someone who claimed they were the smartest man in the world, 
and they had a conversation with you and you were to understand everything they said, they probably aren't the smartest man in the world, right? And Solomon is the wisest guy who lived before Christ. And so this is a hard passage. It's not going to be easy for us to understand, but it is a passage about wisdom, about righteousness, about sin and evil, and about the nature of humankind. I think if we trace the movement of this passage this afternoon, it'll help us understand where Solomon is going. And so the way that we're going to do that is by asking three questions about what is really bad and what is really good. And the first question that Solomon brings up in this passage is an age-old question. Question number one, why do bad things happen to good people? We're going to see that in verses 15 through 18. Why do bad things happen to good people? Live long enough and you will be faced with a situation where something horrible happens to someone who seems to be undeserving of it, who seems to be living in the way one quote-unquote should. And when I was graduated from college, uh, just uh, out of college, I had a job where I experienced this firsthand. I had an older coworker who was just the sweetest lady. So I was probably, I was 22 or 23 maybe, and I had just gotten out of college and I was working at this small company and I was the youngest worker at the company by far, right? Most of the people were in their 40s, 50s and above. But this lady, she was just like a mom to everyone, right? She took care of me. She asked me how life was. She asked me about um, how things were going with uh, my then girlfriend and now wife, Tricia. She was just the sweetest person to everyone in in the office. She helped anyone who needed it. And I remember one day I came into work and she wasn't there. And I was wondering what happened. And we had a call to go into a meeting with the office and that's not a good thing. So we got together for this meeting and the news was shared that her husband the night before had been on a ladder in his garage and had fallen off. He had bumped his head horribly. She had woken up to find him dead. Now, At my young age, it was kind of the first time that I had really wrestled with, why would this happen to her? She didn't seem to deserve it at all. To my sensibilities, all I could say was it felt extremely unfair. And Solomon, who has searched and experienced and looked at everything, he gets that. And so if you look at verse 15, he says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. And that's that's an incredible way to start this passage. In my vain life, I have seen everything. It's a feeling of perplexion. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And what Solomon is saying is it's not simply that bad things seem to happen to quote-unquote good people, but it seems like the correlation that we hope would be there, that if you do good, you'll be rewarded, and if you do bad, you will be punished. It seems sometimes non-existent. There is a righteous man whose righteous deeds seem to lead him into suffering maybe even sorrow, maybe even death, because he's trying to do what is good. And in the same vein, there are people who choose to do what is evil. And in doing that, they sometimes prolong their lives. They sometimes get the blessing that we hope we would get. And again, just illustrating this from my own life, at that same time of life, I had a friend who was um, applying for jobs and getting jobs all the time and getting better and better positions. And I asked him, what is going on? How are you getting such good jobs? And what he told me was, I just lie. I just lie about my experience. I lie about what I can do, what I've done before, and I get these jobs. And I felt like, this is so unfair. This guy is getting rewarded for doing what is evil. Solomon understands this frustration. The situation is distressing to us, but it's very real. It's something that many people, Christian or not, have felt and wondered in their life. And so Solomon says something in verse 16, which is kind of shocking. You can look at it with me. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? 
Now, what is he saying? Is he saying you should sin a little bit? Right? Don't, don't be too crazy about being good. Just, just have a little fun. No, he's not saying that. Okay, he's not saying just um, take it easy. Don't be worried about what's good. He's not saying that doesn't make sense in the re- light of the rest of the book or chapter. But what verse 16 is, is a warning. Now, some commentators have seen it as a warning against self-righteousness or fake righteousness or pretending before others, which I think is obviously a good warning. But I think we can take this at its face value as it's written, noting that, that what he's talking about is our focus. What he's saying here is don't think that being good will protect you from all suffering. If you think that, you're going to destroy yourself. You see, this word in Hebrew, the word destroy, it's not normally used in a physical sense. It's not a word used in like a battle or an army. It's talking about an emotional, mental sense. As in, it will devastate you. It will confuse you. It will appall you if you think that if I just live good enough, I can avoid problems in this world. Solomon is telling us that we can view our human goodness in a way that will destroy us. Especially if we think it will keep us from suffering. It won't. And so, on the one hand, you shouldn't think this way. You shouldn't think that you can avoid suffering by being good enough. And then in verse 17, we have to recognize something else as well. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So even though goodness isn't going to save us, we can't just embrace badness. On the other hand, what is the takeaway? Being good won't stop bad things from happening. But being bad will still increase your pain. It's more than a little disheartening. But Solomon, as he's writing this book, he wants us to realize that there is benefit. There's always a benefit to looking at the truth. There's always a benefit to being honest rather than trite. And so he says in verse 18, the first takeaway from this observation, it is good that you should hold should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Hold on to verse 16 and verse 17. That's what he's saying. He's saying take hold of verse 16, which says that goodness is not going to save you. But then also hold on to verse 17, which says that you can't just embrace badness either. That's going to lead to pain in your life too. It's kind of like that scene from Spider-Man Homecoming, if you've ever watched it. Uh, Maybe I'm dating myself a little bit, but there's a scene where they cut through the boat you guys know what I'm talking about? And Spider-Man is like in the middle and he wraps up both sides and he's holding on to both sides of the boat with his hands. That's what Solomon is saying you got to do. Hold on to this because even though it's hard, it's the truth. Even though it's hard, both of these truths are necessary. Good things will not keep you from suffering. But bad things are still bad for you. Human righteousness is not the solution. But human sin is the problem. That's the first lesson. If you understand that, if you can accept that, then you're going to start to approach real wisdom in knowing and fearing God. So the question was, why do bad things happen to good people? And Solomon says here that it happens so that we might learn this lesson. That our own human righteousness isn't the answer. It never has been. It cannot be. It never will be. But our sin is always the problem. Now, sometimes we wish that our goodness could be the answer, right? We wish that we could just kind of figure out the formula of life. If I could just get my life together morally, then that thing which is so painful in my life would just go away. And this is how all of us are are tempted to think. 
A lot of times in counseling as a pastor, we find people in situations where they're suffering and they're in a circumstance where they just want it to end and they say, what do I need to learn? What do I need to do here so that God will take this suffering away? And it's rarely ever that simple. A lot of times in life, even though there is suffering, God wants to do something good. It's the and it's the revelation of our sin. It's the revelation of our own hearts that he wants to have happen. But we can see things the wrong way. Solomon shows us in point one that to think that our goodness is the answer isn't true. But our badness is still the problem. And so he invites us to go deeper with the second question in this passage. Question number one was, why do bad things happen to good people? Question number two, why do good people do bad things, verses 19 through 24. The second question causes us to look a little more closely at the problem. We might wonder why bad things happen to good people, but the truth is that even good people do bad things. And that question, the question that should immediately come up is why? Why is this? Why is it that people who know what is right and wrong still do what is evil? Why is it that people who know what is right and wrong still even desire at times to do bad things? We live in a world where this is the case, and Solomon points that out to us in these verses. Look at verse 19. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So Solomon starts with a pretty basic, acceptable proverb. Now, he did this earlier in the chapter. We talked about it last week, but uh, this Proverb from verse 19 is something that's similarly said in the book of Proverbs, that wisdom is better than strength. Okay, so wisdom is good. It gives more strength to a wise man than 10 rulers who are in a city. He talks about wisdom and its benefits, that, that wisdom is good, that it can do good, that it can help. But he follows it up with verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, why are these two Proverbs stuck together? That's what we got to ask. Okay, he says, yeah, wisdom is good. It helps someone a lot. It has a lot of benefits, but surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. This is why I think he does this. There's a problem Solomon is bringing up. Wisdom is demonstrably good. Wisdom is something that makes all the sense in the world. It's a great benefit. But knowing that doesn't seem to be able to keep us from sin. Knowing that it doesn't seem to be enough to stop us from doing what is bad. You see the irony here. This is why he's putting these two together. Wisdom will make you stronger than the mighty. And yet, despite knowing that, there is not one righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, Martin Luther, in his Heidelberg disputations or lectures, he spoke about this verse. And he said that the way the Holy Spirit inspired Solomon to write it, it shows us that even when we are doing good, there is still sin there. We are still affected by sin. And, and he likened it to kind of an axe that is rusty and bent and has a terrible edge. He says, even if the axe cutter is skilled, even if the axe cutter is perfect, by using that axe that has been marred, the results will be slightly messed up. If someone cuts with that rusty and rough hatchet, he leaves behind a jagged and ugly gash. Human beings are fallen. That's what Solomon is getting at. And as we have seen in this series on Ecclesiastes, we need to go back to Eden to understand it. We need to recognize that vanity or hevel in Hebrew, that meaninglessness is a product of that fall. And ever since sin came into the world, it has remained ever present 
wherever men and women are. What Solomon is saying is that the power of sin is inescapable and inevitable in this world. So it's not that there aren't nice people. Okay, there are many nice people. I'm looking at many of them right now. There are a lot of people in life who are pretty pleasant and decent people. And he's not just saying that there aren't perfect people either. What he's saying is that even in that niceness, even in kind of living our lives the way that we think we should, sin is always there. Sin is always in some way present. Even a good guy who does good things does so tinged and corrupted by sin. And so we need to deal with this too. Not only will bad things happen, no matter how good a person seems, but no matter how good a person seems, he or she will also do bad things. Look at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. If you aren't expecting people to be sinners, then you aren't expecting people to be people. So he uses this universal example. Right? He goes to say, if you, if you have a problem with Solomon's claim that everyone has sin and is tinged by sin and affected by sin, he uses a universal example to get his point across. Nobody likes when somebody gossips about them, right? Anybody here enjoy that? You don't have to raise your hand. I know that no one wants to be talked about poorly behind their backs amongst other people. And yet, anybody here never done that in their life? You can raise your hand if you've never done it. We've all done it. This is a universal example. Solomon says, don't take that to be heart. Don't, don't be surprised and shocked by that because you know in your heart that you yourself have done the thing you hate a million times over. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 2.1. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Every person is a sinner. Every person will sin, even though we know sin is bad and righteousness is good. Solomon's example of gossip and cursing is just one of a million examples of how this happens every day. Just this week, I was reading in the news about a couple who had fought extremely hard to fight against moral decay in the schools. They were they were kind of just trying to protect the kids from the things that are happening in the culture. And then they were forced by a scandal to admit that while they were doing that, they were involved in the very same sexual sin that they condemned. See, what what am I trying to get at here? Hypocrisy is not the exception with humans. It's the norm. And this leads to the final verses of this second question, verses 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom, I said. That's Solomon the preacher. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Solomon is pointing out the truth that he has found that despite his own desire to seek after wisdom, even despite his own gifting by God to be smart about it, He was not able to actually obtain righteousness. He was not able to actually be fully, perfectly wise. And so when we ask the question, why do good people do bad things? We need to see the Bible answers that by saying, it's because we cannot help ourselves. The problem is not just out there. We say this all the time in Zoe, the problem is in here. In me. In my heart. I think Solomon uses the word wisdom twice in verse 23 for emphasis. 
He is the wisest guy who ever lived before Jesus. He was gifted from God. He sought it out. He learned it. But the power to actually be wise, to live righteously, was far off from him. It was impossible for even him to uncover. Have you ever felt this way? Let me, let me just speak maybe to Christians in the room or non-Christians. Have you ever felt absolutely powerless to sin? Have you ever felt defeated by it? That, that, that you know that it's wrong. And yet you go back to do it again and again. Every sin that entangles and destroys us is done by uh, us in kind of a spiritual schizophrenia. Right? We think that we're good. We know what's right. We shouldn't do it. And yet we find ourselves in the same breath seeking after it. Have you come to the point where you recognize that what Solomon says here is true of the world and is true of you? Have you come to the point where you recognize that as hard as you might try or whatever you might say, you cannot seem to stop yourself from doing bad? That sin has a power over you that is undeniable. You've promised not to do that thing, but you keep doing it. You said you'd never lose your temper like that again, or you'd never go back to that place or that person or substance or website, and yet you're there again. And if so, Solomon says, you're not alone, okay? Just be honest. This is how human beings are, universally so, under the sun. So why do good people do bad things? Because they cannot help but do them. Surely there is not even a righteous man who does good and does not sin. And that leads to the third and final question this afternoon, which we find in verses 25 to 29. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's question one. Question two, why do good people do bad things? Question three, why are we so bad? Okay, kind of simple. Why are we so bad? Read verse 25 with me, and that's not bad in the Michael Jackson way. Okay. Verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. In verse 25, Solomon takes a turn. Okay. He says, I turned my heart to know. And in the verse, it's kind of a, a verbal change, right? He's talking about something in his heart changing. He, he, he's approaching it a little bit differently, but it's not necessarily a good approach. He says, I turned my heart to know and search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things, but then I wanted to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness ooh, of all and the foolishness that is madness. He turned his heart to seek out the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. Now, he's basically saying, I wanted to get to the bottom line. In so doing, he, he goes a little bit extreme, I would say. He wanted to figure out his theory of everything. He wanted to find out why humans were like this. And he decided then to dive into wickedness and folly. See, Solomon, he's tried to approach things from a righteous and wise standpoint. He's seen our limitations here, that we are unable to be fully wise and, and righteous on our own. We're always affected by sin. And then it's almost as if he takes that famous phrase, if you can't beat them, join them. And he tries it out. Now, uh, this is not really a comfortable thing to think about, right? We don't like to think that an author of scripture would actually have attempted to find meaning and joy and whatever in sin. But read the book of, of Kings and, and uh, you'll find out that this is what Solomon did. 
Okay? Solomon does this. He doesn't do everything right. He actually does do a lot of sin. Solomon, he says that if he can't figure out how to be good, he might try being bad. If I can't find the answer in trying to be good, perhaps the freedom and the enlightenment that I want can be found in embracing being bad. Maybe I just need to indulge this a little bit, find out if it's really as bad as I was always raised to believe. Have you ever felt that way? I've heard people talk that way to me, and I've felt that way myself before. Maybe I just got to give it up and find out what's so good about being bad. And if you've ever felt that way, and this is what Solomon is speaking to. Solomon tried this in some way. Solomon, the preacher, sought to know wickedness and madness. He sought to understand even sin. It doesn't mean he did the worst possible things, but he studied it. He looked into wicked folly and foolish madness, and this is what he found. Verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. <laughs> this is a weird verse, okay? Let me just be honest. Like, it's weird because he starts talking about a woman. And it's like, what's going on? Is this like a misogynistic thing? Is he just saying like the worst thing in life is a bad wife? I don't think that's what's going on here, okay? You look at this verse, the imagery is pretty clearly something we can identify, okay? It's obviously not a politically correct thing to say in our day and age. The imagery is of a seductress, okay, someone uh, who is trying to trick or trap someone to come into their home or their bed and entice them to their doom. And this idea of an adulterous woman is the sort of idea Solomon wants to bring to mind, the woman who sets her snare and tries to invite a young man to fall into her trap of sin. That's in the Proverbs. The Proverbs talk about that. But that's not what Solomon is getting at completely. That's the image he's using. But what is he getting at? He's making a bigger point about what he found when he turned his mind towards folly and madness and wickedness. He found the utter insanity of our desire for sin. And let me explain. Some interpreters, they read verse 26. And they see in it, and I think they're right, the personification of folly. Like Solomon says in Proverbs 9. So you can turn there if you want. Proverbs 9 uh, is just uh, a little bit um, after or before Ecclesiastes. Proverbs 9, 13. In Proverbs chapter 9, in the first half of this chapter, uh it talks about lady wisdom, okay? So it talks about wisdom personified as a lady. But the second half of Proverbs 9 talks about folly described as a lady, okay? And this is what it says in verses 13 through 18. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Folly can be personified as a woman. She is seductive, but she knows nothing. She entices and traps a person and offers pleasure and satisfaction, but has nothing of value to give. She lures people to their chains and death. And this is what I think Solomon is getting at in verses 25 and 26. 
He's talking about our human depravity. He's talking about sin. He's talking about foolishness. And what he has found is that the end of all that is suffering and enslavement and death. This shows us a vision of humanity that is absolutely difficult to swallow. Humans are bad. And truth be told, we are so bad because we want what is bad for us. This is the nature of sin. The Bible says the human heart is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's not just that good people do bad things because they can't help themselves. It's also the case that supposedly good people often, at the core, actually desire the bad. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? We don't all secretly want the worst possible things, the greatest possible suffering. But in a very real sense, there is a disease of madness inside of human beings. We accept and we even desire the chains and the fetters of sin because we'd rather have that than God. That is why verse 26 says, he found something more bitter than death. Isn't that kind of an incredible statement? It's more bitter than death. It's worse. It's madness. It's insanity. It's depravity. And, and, and while it is true in the last part of the verse that the one who pleases God escapes his fate, the sinner is taken by it. The sinner is drawn to it. This is, after all, exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. Go back to Eden. Go back to the garden. There's one thing they know. It's that if they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. And yet, they eat. And Adam and Eve, knowing that this would lead to the death of themselves spiritually and of their children and of thousands of generations, they eat. And the Bible is very clear that the reason they ate is not because anyone forced them to, but because they wanted to taste that fruit. And verse 27 gives us the conclusion that Solomon comes to. Adam and Eve knew what they were doing and did it anyway. But if we're honest for a moment, so would all of us. So would I. So do all of us almost every day. So if you're looking for a man or woman who is not taken by sin and folly, well, then you're going to be looking for a really, really, really long time. And that's what verses 27 through 29 say. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, these verses are hard to translate, which is why it's a little bit of grammatical difficulty. They are hard to interpret. But I think what Solomon is doing here is he's, he's making his point with hyperbole. He's not saying that women are worse than men, okay? He's not saying that one out of a thousand is a lot better than zero out of a thousand, but he is making a point. He has written elsewhere about there being a virtuous woman in the Proverbs. The Bible talks about this. But what Solomon is saying here is that in his experience, as he sought to find a righteous person, he has been left wanting. He makes a progression to emphasize how crazy it is, okay? In all his searching, he sought for a righteous person, but that person was exceedingly rare. One man in a thousand, zero women in a thousand. And just to kind of help you understand where he's going, it's kind of like a kid who says when they go to a really crowded um, party or maybe to a movie theater and they say, man, there was only one seat left in the theater. 
Actually, there were like no seats left in the theater. I think that's kind of what Solomon is doing. He's making a progression to emphasize just how crazy it is. And the key here is in verse 29. See, this alone I found. He couldn't find a good person, but this is what he found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That God made us right in the garden. That Adam and Eve were born without sin, and yet, just like them, we all have turned away. This is Solomon's conclusion. The question is, why are we so bad? The answer is because we have left human goodness in the garden. Right? We live east of Eden. In the most perverse way, we toil under the sun, but we live and walk in darkness. Why are we so bad? God isn't to blame. He made us good. He made us upright. But in sin, we have turned to our own way. In our community groups, we memorize the verse, right? Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. This alone is what Solomon has found to be universal truth. That all have jumped in bed in some way with folly. And so then, what's the application for us? If you think you're righteous, you're wrong. If you think you're good deep down, you're wrong. You've got to stop thinking that way. If you realize that maybe you're bad, if you realize that maybe there, there is something more serious than even death and that's sin, well, then you're starting to be right. Solomon brings us face to face with the depths of depravity and he forces us to sit there with him for a spell. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people do bad things? Why are we so bad? Solomon wants us to question and answer these questions honestly. He wants us to kind of deconstruct our preconceived notions until we realize that badness is actually just part and parcel of humanity. It's everywhere. It binds us together, and we brought it into the world, each and every one of us, over and over again. As a famous theologian, Taylor Swift once said, It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. Pardon my levity to lighten the mood. But the point is deathly serious. We aren't the good guys in the story. You guys understand that we're not the good guys in the story of the Bible. We're not the solution. We always have been the problem. That is Solomon's final answer. So, so why does he bring us here? Why does he take us here? Why does he go here in the middle of this book? Well, as we have always said in the book of Ecclesiastes, he does it ultimately when he takes us somewhere uncomfortable and painful and hard. He does it ultimately to bring us to God. So that in facing our depravity and facing our sin and facing our badness, we realize that the only solution is not going to be found on this earth, but in our maker. And so as we end, I'll step back from Solomon and return to Flannery O'Connor and the rest of her story. A good man is hard to find. The grandmother um, and Red Sammy, they're sitting in the diner complaining about the state of the world. And soon the family gets back on their way to Florida. Eventually, they decide to pull over 
to kind of a small country road that is headed towards the plantation. And the grandmother says that she's been this way before and there's something there she wants to show her grandchildren. But as they go, they end up in a car accident. So they're stranded there. Their car is broken. They're stuck kind of on this side road and a car pulls up. The car rolls up and with it some hope that someone might stop to save them. But as the inhabitants of the car pop out and they begin to inspect the crash site, the grandmother has this terrifying realization. She recognizes one of the men. He is the misfit. He's that guy who escaped from prison. And this car that stopped by is him and his accomplices. And so she makes the mistake of telling him. She, 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 she reveals the information that she has seen him before. And she begins to plead for some level of decency and goodness. If you've read the story, her pleas are ignored. Instead, what happens is the men, they systematically take the son, Bailey, and his wife and his three kids into the forest, and they kill each one of them. And all that's left then is the grandmother talking with the misfit. And as she sits pleading for her life with this man and appealing to his inner goodness, she cries out to Jesus. And the misfit begins to talk about him. And it's really interesting. He says, if Jesus really died and rose again, then there's nothing to do but throw everything away and to go and follow him. But then he says, but if Jesus didn't, then there's nothing to do but enjoy the life you can with killing, with burning things down. And then he says, actually, to just have meanness and no pleasure. And in the last moment, the grandmother, she sees just how broken and and hurt this man who has experienced so much evil and done so much evil is. And she reaches out to him with a touch of kindness. But when she touches him, he springs back as if bitten by a snake. And he shoots her three times in the chest. At the very end of the story, the misfit says these words. There's no real pleasure in life. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because I believe that Flannery O'Connor knew what Solomon did too. If all we have is this world, if all we have is us humans, then it's true. All we have is hopelessness. There's no real pleasure in life. It is impossible to have. If all we have is the disappointment and disillusionment of growing up in a world that we once thought was good as kids, but we realize is actually pretty bad, then all we should do is just try to avoid it as long as we can ignore the problem of evil, deny it exists even. If all we have is this world, then even in that, none of it really matters. But if Jesus really came, then that changes everything. And there's nothing to be done but to throw it all away and to follow him. Next week is Christmas, okay? It's a wonderful time of year. How do we tie the joy of Christmas to the despair of this passage. Well, you guys know Isaiah 9, right? Uh, Maybe you don't, but you'll recognize it if I say it. Isaiah 9, a very famous Christmas passage, for unto us a child is born, right? Unto us a son is given. Four verses before that, what does Isaiah say? He says, to the people who walk in darkness, they have seen a great light. To those who dwell in deep darkness, the light has shone upon them. That's what Christmas is about. The light of the world, it's valuable, it's precious, it's amazing because of the deep darkness. 
How do we deal with the reality of darkness that Solomon leads us to by knowing that to face the darkness is necessary to receive the light? I remember once having a conversation with a friend who had grown up in church um, but was rejecting it. And he said to me, why do you believe this? How can you believe this thing that is just an old book, right? It's thousands of years old. How do you live your life by this and, and try to follow its rules? It's crazy, right? These people just wrote this down and are long since dead. How do you know this book is true? And I've thought about that conversation a lot. And I've realized that the answer is many faceted. But there's one big thing. It's because this book tells me the truth about my problem. The problem of my human condition. It tells me the truth that the only solution that I could ever find is found in Jesus. There was an old church father, a leader in the early church whose name was Cyril of Jerusalem. And he once wrote this as he was instructing younger men in the ministry. Regarding the reality of sin and evil in the world, he said, The dragon sits by the side of the road, watching those who pass. Beware lest he devour you. We go to the father of souls, but it is necessary to pass by the dragon. See, this is why we need Ecclesiastes 7. Unless you know how bad you are without God, you will never see how good the news of Christmas and of Jesus and of Easter is. But when we see our sin rightly and face it with the gospel, it's true that everything can change. That we can be freed from this thing that, that dominates the world, that, that holds us in darkness. We can be freed in heaven, but even in this life as we walk with him. And so this afternoon, we've looked at our darkness. We've come face to face with the dragon. We've come and wrestled with the bad. We've delved into the folly and madness of sin. But for those who are Christians, I hope we have also come to remember and believe. That God, the Father, that the Father of souls has given us what we need. The life of his only begotten Son, slain for us, so that we might look darkness in the eye, and by his grace, be freed. And if we know that, we can have hope. So how do we end Ecclesiastes 7? Take heart. Take heart. It's a negative kind of passage, but we can take heart. Solomon shows us that a good man or a good woman is hard to find. It's impossible, really. But God is good. But Jesus is good. And if you believe the good news of salvation, no matter how bad things get, you can and will find all you really need in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this afternoon and we ask, Lord, that Christ would be magnified in our singing, in our words, in our fellowship, most importantly, in our hearts. Lord, we, we who are Christians here, Lord, we know about sin. And we who are those who are not Christians here, you, you know about sin too. God, we, we are all in this world together. We are tainted by sin, Lord. It's something we have chosen to turn away from you, and yet you sent Jesus. But a good man is impossible to find, and yet... You sent your perfect son to live and to die for us. And so would we, just right now, Lord, although there are so many implications to that, would we just right now believe 
Repent, receive your grace, be reminded of Jesus, and worship him. In his name we pray. Amen.